0: Well, good morning, family. How are you today? Man, we've already had a baptism. I feel like Sean Alex. Man, let's just keep singing and then let's go home. Sean, good? Yeah. Well, can't do that. Got to talk a little bit this morning, so let's get into it. Grab your Bibles. Go with me to two passages. First one, go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Put a finger there. And then go with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. We're going to hit both passages today in just a moment. All right. With that said, time to hop into a topic. Many of you are going to kind of clinch up over, but it's an important one. Here's the question in the series, Asking for a Friend. The question is this. What about LGBTQIA+. Now, as soon as I ask that question, there are a lot of responses. Let me give you top three responses. First response is... What is that? Right? Some in here go, I don't know what that means. So let me first start with a bit of clarity. LGBTQIA plus stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer or questioning. The I is intersex. And the A tends to be used to talk about either asexual or allies. People who agree with and support those within this category. And the plus is basically a catch-all for anyone else who may identify in a certain way other than for the traditional gender and sexual roles. That's the first one. Second response, and I'm guessing in this room there's a lot who have this second response, and here it is. It's the second response of, I don't want to talk about this. And here's why. For some in this room, the reason we don't want to talk about it is because it hits really close to home. Either we personally struggle with this, In our church, we have brothers and sisters who love Jesus, are committed to Jesus, saved by Jesus, but they'll tell you, this is where they struggle. And so it's close to home. And then there's others in our church, if you're like me, you have dear friends who don't simply struggle, but they identify as gay or transgender. And so we don't want to talk about it because it's like, oh no, what's the preacher going to say? And then there's a third group, right? The third group goes, I don't see what the big deal is. I mean, we are in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Why are we talking about this? No one cares. It's not an issue for us, right? It's fringe. Respectfully, no. This is not a fringe issue. It is a growing concern. And as followers of Jesus Christ who have friends with questions, children with questions, grandchildren with questions, it is our responsibility to lovingly and biblically try and address the questions of our day. That is one of the reasons we gather on Sunday. And so for those who may think, isn't this just a fringe issue? Let me give you a few examples of why this is not. Now, I'm not going to show any of these to shock you, but rather to help you understand why we're talking about it. So let's start 22 years ago. In 2000, President Clinton officially declared June the month of gay and lesbian pride month. So all month, you've seen rainbow flags, etc. In 2011, this was extended to include uh, the rest of those who would be outside of the normative gender roles, sexual identity. So that's first. Second, in 2004, Massachusetts is the first state to legalize same-sex marriage. By 2015, over 30 states legalized it. And then in June of 2015, the Supreme Court legalized nationally same-sex marriage. Also that year, well-known former Olympic medalist Bruce Jenner comes out, as uh, says he's a woman, and begins to transition and to identify as Caitlyn Jenner. And as of this year, there are at least 81 different genders that people will go by. Now, I'm not making fun, and I'm certainly not joking when I show you this next slide. The newest Gender identity that I've heard, and perhaps you've heard this as well, is what is called, I'm not. this is not make-believe, is cake gender. Uh, a girl on TikTok, she goes, I'm cake gender. What does that mean? It means that I am sweet on the outside and I feel light and fluffy on the inside. So now we have a variety of people claiming different genders and gender identities. This year, William Thomas, a biological male who has been taking uh, uh, estrogen treatments, and is now calling himself Leah, competed in the NCAA Women's Championship Swimming. And he won by a lot. In addition to that, on Mother's Day of this year, clothing brand Calvin Klein included an ad for mothers showing what they called a pregnant transgender man. It was a biological woman who is undergoing hormone treatment and is pregnant. Also, as of this year, places that we would typically think are very safe very pro-family, have become very non-pro-family. Disney, this year, in March, there was a leaked video of Disney's leadership having a hands-on meeting admitting to a few things. One, to a very pro-gay agenda where they are intentionally and historically very secretively inserting pro-gay and transgender ideology into their children's programming, including preschool and elementary ages. The president of content, a woman named Carrie Burke, said that her two children were also transgender and pansexual. And in March, they, as an organization, said that we will wholeheartedly endorse and promote the transgendering of our children. Now, Target, one of the very popular big box stores, is selling what is called a chest binder. What is this? It is simply a restrictive garment that is sold even to preteen little girls to restrict the growth of their healthy breasts because we're trying to help them look like a little boy. And finally, as of February of this year, 21% of Gen Z adults, that's 18-year-olds to 25-year-olds, 21% of them, that's one in five, say that they identify as LGBTQ+. That number, by the way, is up from last year, this time, when only 15.9% of this demographic said they identify. So the numbers are jumping up very quickly. Now again, I don't say any of this to shock you or make you feel awkward. It's really just to say this is a conversation that the church needs to be thoughtful and honest about because you have friends with questions. Parents, you have children who if they're not already being asked or exposed to these questions will be, and you need, as parents, to have thoughtful biblical answers to lovingly guide your children. Can I get an amen from any parents on that one? Okay, now it's our job to be loving in the way we respond, so here's what I want to do. Four disclaimers, then we're going to dive in. Disclaimer number one, this is a tough topic. Can I get an oh yeah for the preacher on this one? (laughs) I'm not going to say this perfect. In fact, some of you are going to think I overstate things. Others of you are going to say, I don't say enough. Here's my point. I'm not going to do this perfect for everyone here, but I'll do my best. Second disclaimer, I'm going to do my best to avoid my personal opinions because my opinion doesn't matter. I will do my best to let the Scriptures, and specifically our Savior Jesus, do the talking. Number three, I think that labels, including gender Labels like LGBTQ+, I don't think that they are particularly helpful, and here's why. Labels are lazy. They allow us to dehumanize or dismiss people or group them exclusively based on one character traits. And then we don't have to think about them as human beings, do we? So I'm going to, as best I can, avoid labels. But there is one word I think is very, very helpful for us this morning, and is this one word. Orientation. Everyone say, orientation. Orientation. Now, why is that a helpful word? Here's the reason that's a really helpful word, not just on this topic, but on all topics. It's because of this definition. An orientation is the direction you are facing and moving, which leads to a specific destination. So, with a compass, you orient yourself to true north, and then you are able to figure out where you're going. Uh, We're all orienting our lives in a variety of ways, aren't we? Not just in gender or sexuality, but in our finances, isn't it true that we all have an orientation on how we spend or save money? Do I have any penny pinchers in the room this morning? I mean, you see a penny, you squeeze until that president screams. Anyone here? Right? You're oriented towards being very, we'll say frugal. Your spouse might say stingy, Okay. And then we have others who are not frugal, but they orient their finances more towards big spender. Anyone in here a big spender? Anyone in here married to a big spend? Actually, don't do that, okay? We want you to be married to the big spender after the lesson. So we are oriented financially. We're oriented relationally. Some of you are absolutely relational beasts. If there's not a party when you arrive, there is one when you leave. Amen. There's others of you who are oriented more towards task. It's like, look, I don't care if we're hanging out. Let's get something done. Come on people. And then, of course, we are oriented when it comes to our sexuality. In other words, this word applies not just to sex and gender, but to every area of life. Now hear me, as followers of Jesus, when Jesus uses the phrase, follow me, Jesus is actually, next slide, that's his invitation to reorientation. It's his invitation to say, wherever you may be pointing in life, I'm now inviting you to line up under true north and follow me financially, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, and yes, sexually. And so, I want to cover four things this morning as briefly as I can. Now, I say briefly, there's a lot to cover today, and I don't plan to revisit this topic on a weekly basis, so bear with me. We are going to go a little longer today because I don't want to miss some of the key things that you have asked me specifically. But there are four categories we're going to cover. First, what does Jesus teach about orientation? Number two, we will then answer some of the questions or claims that some of you have brought to my attention. I'm going to try my best to answer those from a biblical perspective. Then number three, we're going to address what does Jesus do with all of us whenever we're disoriented in any area of life. And I want to tell you, it's good news. If you've ever sinned, this is going to be a good news section of the message. And then finally, how do we as the followers of Christ respond in love and truth, not just to people who may struggle with their gender or sexuality, but to everyone, including all of us in this room. Okay, so here we go. First thing, what does Jesus teach about Sexual orientation, you'll be interested to know that Jesus never uses the word homosexual, transgender, gay, lesbian, none of the topics like that we're talking about. He doesn't use those words. But he does use, and he does help us to understand, rather, sexual orientation when he is one day approached by a group of religious leaders who are out to get Jesus. Isn't it true that in the church sometimes we're more interested in being right than in following Jesus? And so in Matthew chapter 19, a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. Everyone say, Pharisee. The Pharisees come to Jesus with a test. They say, is it lawful for a man, Jesus, to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So now they're going to come at him with a specific question that actually applies to our situation based on Jesus' response. Notice this Jesus' response. How does he start this? Haven't you read? In other words, why don't you go back to the book, give it a look, and see what it says. But haven't you read that at the, what's this word, church? Beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Notice they say command, but Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the, what's that word, church? Beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, we'll actually come back to that word later, and marries another woman, commits adultery now notice what Jesus' disciples say disciples are followers of jesus who say we are reorienting our life we call disciples christians so the christians the disciples the followers of jesus said to him if this is the situation between a husband and a wife well it's better not to marry jesus isn't that such a dude thing to say if it's hard i don't want to do it and by the way these are the christians these are the followers this isn't out there this is in here Isn't it interesting that even in the church we sometimes disagree with Jesus? Isn't it also interesting that Jesus doesn't beat them up for asking questions? Friends, the church must be a place where we can always ask questions. If not in here, then where? So notice Jesus' answer. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, yep, it's hard. And I want you to see what Jesus does. He says, you're right, it's hard. Let me tell you the world around me. Jesus is about to say I'm not ignorant of the challenges facing the world or people in the world. He says this. He says, "For there are eunuchs." Now, a eunuch is someone who has uh, either does not have or has lost their sexual organ. Okay? Is that is that clear enough? We'll keep going. "For there are eunuchs who are born that way, there are eunuchs who have been made that way by others, and there's a third category. There are those who Choose, keyword, choose to live like eunuchs. Why? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. So Jesus says two things in this passage about orientation sexual, emotional, relational, all of it. You want to see what he says. Number one, Jesus holds to God's ideal. He does not base what he says on the current cultural moment of first century Judaism, where everyone was leaning towards, well, anyone can be divorced for any reason. Jesus says, no, God's standard, God's ideal, he goes back to the design. He doesn't look at where things are, he looks at how things were supposed to be. And in relation to this, he says the definition of biblical sexuality is one biological man with one biological woman together in marriage. He starts at the beginning. Jesus holds to God's ideal. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we must therefore hold to God's ideal. But notice Jesus, he holds to God's ideal, and he acknowledges the real. He acknowledges that this world is busted up. Does anyone else agree, just raise a hand, that this world is kind of busted up in some areas? And by the way, you don't have to look way out there If you're like me, you just have to look in a mirror to be able to agree this world's busted because I'm busted. Anyone else willing to admit that they're busted as well, that you need a Savior? And so Jesus, he says, hold on to God's ideal, and I'm acknowledging the real. Well, what's the real, Jesus? Three things. He says, some are born eunuchs. Isn't it true that there are those in our community, maybe even in our church, who are born with genitalia that does not match their biology? Yes. Yes. Or, or, or how about this? People who feel a certain way, but it doesn't seem to match what they see in the mirror. Is that true? Absolutely. Is it also true that there are some who are made eunuchs through surgery? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, right now, there are people who will, for a fee, $70,000 a pop, they will help a preteen or a teenage child be transitioned through surgery, become a eunuch effectively. But it's also true that it happens by others, happens because of our own choice. Uh, Did you know there are eunuchs in the Bible? God-fearing men and women who love Jesus? Yeah. Old Testament, I'll give you four. Daniel, his three amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and who? Abednego were all made eunuchs by the pagan kingdom that brought them into exile. They had to be eunuchs to be in the king's palace. So there are those who are born, some are made, and some, here's the key, who choose be eunuchs. What does that mean? Single or celibate. Why? Because they follow Jesus. In other words, he does not ignore the reality of life or the complexity of life, and he does not give up God's ideal in the process. The danger in the church is that we would do one of those two without the other, that we would either hold to the truth of God while ignoring the difficulty of life and dismissing it or by saying it's so hard that we must not listen to what God has said. You need to know we have people in our church who very much struggle with this. A couple of weeks ago, after one of the messages, a dear friend of mine came up to me with tears in their eye and said, what else are we going to be talking about? And we talked, said, well, this will be one of the topics. And this individual goes, that's me. That, that's my struggle. This is something not just out there. This is something in here. And so Jesus holds to God's idea while acknowledging the Real. Now, a big question that always comes up is, okay, Diggs, what about my feelings and my desires? I get that you're saying that this is God's ideal, but what do I do with desire? I want to give you three words, three ideas to help you understand this. Because some of you are living in guilt and shame because you have unwanted desires, perhaps. But you don't know where that lines up with God and, and, and are you sinning? What do you do with these feelings? Let me give you these three words. Desire. Action. Identity, Desire, action, identity. Desire is something that you may want, but here's what you need to know. A desire on its own is not sin. You say, how do I say that? The Bible says that. Do you remember when Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he neither ate food nor drank any water. And the scripture gives the biggest no-dust statement ever. And Jesus was hungry. Yeah, Forty days, I'd be hungry. And so what happens next? The devil comes and does what with Jesus? He tempts Jesus. Now, a temptation will not be a temptation to you if you have no desire for the temptation. Jesus, in his humanity, was hungry and absolutely would desire bread, but he chose in that moment to do what was right. So desire on its own is not sin. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, While I cannot keep birds from flying overhead, I can keep the birds from building nests on my head. So a desire is not a sin, but an entertained desire, one that you begin to fantasize about, live in, think about, or act out. That is what the Bible calls sins. So desire, no. Action, yes. And the person, any of us, who make a desire or an action our ultimate identity or and say, this is who I am, that becomes your identity. Now, here's what's interesting. Go ahead and put that last one up there, Andy. It's simply who I am. Now, here's what I want you to hear, and I think this is so, so important. Your identity is whatever you make supreme about you. This is why, when we began the series, asking for a friend, we began with the important statement that what you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. Why? Because if your identity is in Jesus then everything else orients around that. What I need you to hear is this. If Jesus is your identity, then although things may pull at you, friend, they do not define you. Jesus is your identity. Now, there are other questions that come up, other uh, claims, if you will, and I'd like to just address a few of those this morning. So if you want, you may jot these down or take pictures of the screen. Here's the first claim. Some of you have asked me to kind of, how do we wrestle with this? So here's the first one. Jesus didn't specifically talk about homosexuality or transgenderism, so Christians shouldn't either, should we? That's a fair question, isn't it? Here's what I'd like to suggest to you. There are many things, many words Jesus never uses, but that does not mean we therefore support them. For instance, Jesus never uses the word idol or idolatry or rape, or incest, or bestiality, or even fraud, does that therefore mean that he is supportive of those behaviors? No, of course not. Simply him not saying it does not mean that we should endorse it. Now, Jesus does, however, address all forms of sexual sin when he uses the word that we saw a moment ago when he said it's sexual immorality. And I want to show it to you again in Mark chapter 7. Notice what he says here. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Now notice all the things he gives. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Before I say anything about sexual immorality, notice that arrogance is included in the list. Jesus smacks all of us in this moment. No one is above another person because we simply have different temptations or sins. Can I get an amen? But the word he does use is this one. Sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. Everybody say porneia. Does that word sound familiar to anyone? From that word we get our words porn or pornography. Now in Greek, porneia is a junk drawer term. Do you know what a junk drawer is? How many of you in your house have a drawer... That collects every bit of junk that you have. So you open it up and you've got socks in there and a pair of scissors. You've even maybe got some old, you know, wrappers and other things. Anyone have a junk drawer in your house? You liars. I know you do. What is this? Okay, well let me tell you. A junk drawer has all the stuff in it. This word is the junk drawer term that is everything outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage between a biological man and woman fits in the category of pornea. And here's the technical definition if you want it. It refers to every form of sexual sin, including extramarital, unlawful, or unnatural sexual intercourse, fornication, sexual immorality, and prostitution. In other words, everything outside of one biological man and one biological woman in a monogamous marriage is considered immoral. So Jesus does address this topic broadly. And I think there's even a bigger question at play here. Some of us want to say, well, if Jesus doesn't say it, we don't have to do it. If all Scripture is God-breathed, brothers and sisters, then the black letters of Scripture apply as much as the red letters of Scripture. Do we understand that? Now, claim number two that comes up and that I've been asked to address this morning is, well, sexual desire cannot be chosen or changed. And we've all heard this before, and I want to be very clear. I am sympathetic to the unmet desires we all crave in life. That is a difficult theme, But I also want to tell you that Jesus never said following him meant that he would remove unwanted desires. Let me ask you this question Raise your hand if you know anyone who's ever struggled with alcohol or substance abuse or drug addiction at all. Anyone in here knows someone? Is it true that just because you become a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that Christ then takes away the desire for a drink? For most people, the answer is no. No. Or what about, for those of us who are rageaholics, you just get mad at the drop of a hat. Is it true that just because you follow Jesus, all of a sudden you are never angry again? No, of course not. You will constantly have to submit that wrong desire to God's leading. That's why God gives you the Holy Spirit to make you holy and to help you overcome your innate natural desires. Now, beyond that, I need you to understand that desire does not determine what is right or wrong. What we do with those desires is what makes something right. Every one of us has innate desires that are at war with what God wants us to do. Is that true? Do you have things you want to do that God doesn't want you to do, church? Anyone else in here just struggle sometimes, wanting to do bad things? Yeah, me too. I love what happened in 2005. Reporter Katie Couric sits down with Pastor Rick Warren, who is a pastor in California... And this was during the Prop 8 situation of California where they were talking about, hey, you know, gay marriage, no gay marriage. And she says, would you change your opinion if we discovered a gay gene? And I love his response. He goes, nope. She goes, well, why not? He goes, well, because we all have natural, innate genetic desires that are not good for us or good for other people. And he said, for instance, I, Katie, Have a desire to have sex with every beautiful woman I see. And at that moment, Miss Kirk's eyes got really big and she moved away. (laughs) But he said, But my desires don't determine what I do. I'm not an animal. Your desires, while a gift from God in some cases, can be twisted and warped by a broken world, they do not determine what is right or what is wrong. Claim number three, LGBTQ plus behavior can't be wrong. Why? Well, because it's not hurting anyone. Have you ever heard someone argue about anything with the claim that, well, it doesn't hurt someone, so it must be okay? Well, let's just talk about that. This is a misunderstanding of what sin really is. Sin, please put this up, sin is not primarily about hurting others. Sin is primarily about rebelling against God. This is really important, friends. Sin is primarily about me telling God, I'm the boss, you're not the boss. That I get to do my way, not you and your way. And what this means, by the way, you say, well, where do we get that from? Let me show you real fast. King David in Psalm 51 makes this point. He has just had Uriah killed. He's the husband of the woman that he had an affair with. And after he does this, notice what he says, crying out to God. David says this, against you, God. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But David, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? You sinned against them too, didn't you? The answer is, yes, there are sins against one another. But David rightly prioritizes that all sin is first and foremost rebellion against God. And God, Scripture says, will punish all unrighteousness if we do not repent. This is why the gospel is great news. It's that you and me as rebels may be forgiven. Is that good news to anyone? I mean, that's great news. Because there is a punishment coming, and Jesus says, Josh, if you'll accept me, I'll take the punishment for you. So if a punishment comes for rebelling against God, and if by sinning with someone else I am putting them in danger of God's divine judgment. Then I am absolutely hurting someone when I invite them into sinful behavior. Do you follow? It absolutely hurts others because it breaks relationship with them and their creator. Claim number four. Same page, here we go. The Old Testament law prohibits a lot of things, such as eating shellfish. Christians, the claim goes, are inconsistent for prohibiting LGBTQ plus behavior while disregarding other Old Testament laws. Uh, so here's what people are actually saying. Hey, look, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of laws. Like, you can't, um, you can't eat shellfish. How many of you like crab legs? Anyone in here? Lobster with copious amounts of butter, Right? Oh, I love eating Sebastian. Mm. Any of you get that reference? Some of you are going, no, that's weird, Digs. <laughs> all right, it's Little Mermaid. We'll go to that later. So there's a prohibition on eating shellfish. There's a prohibition on wearing clothing with different types of weave or having different kinds of grain and uh, plants being put together in the same rows. Okay, all these different laws. And people say, well, okay, if you're going to ignore those laws, how can you harp on these laws? Here's why. There are different kinds of laws in the Old Testament. By the way, we have different laws in our nation as well. Different levels of murder, for instance, manslaughter, second degree, first degree. So we recognize there are different kinds of laws. So in the Old Testament, there are three kinds of laws. You may want to take a picture, and if you have questions, we'll talk more. Three kinds. First one is priestly laws. By the way, who do you think the priestly laws are for? Yeah, the priest. Not, I'm not, not a trick question, right? And then the second one are the ceremonial laws. What you can eat, what you wear, Sabbath observance, etc. And that was for the nation of Israel. And then there's the third one, which are moral laws, such as don't kill people, don't commit adultery. And those laws, well, let me ask you this way. Are moral laws just for Israel church? No. Are you supposed to kill people? No. So that is a moral law for all people. And by the way, that law doesn't change just because we're in the New Testament or after Jesus' resurrection. So, in fact, when Jesus came, his death on the cross and his resurrection was the final sacrifice needed. Meaning all the Old Testament priestly laws were now fulfilled, completed, and no longer needed. The ceremonial laws, just for the Jews, those were lifted in the New Testament as well. For in Christ, the church becomes this new body of Jew and Gentile. And you say, where is it lifted? Look at Acts chapter 10 and Acts 15. And then finally, though, the moral laws. You say, well, were those lifted in Jesus' day? No. In fact, they were reinforced and repeated in the New Testament. You don't kill people. You don't have sex outside of marriage. And so this statement, although I understand where it comes from, misunderstands the different kinds of laws. And then number five, five, fifth claim, and this one breaks my heart. The claim is that the church just doesn't love the LGBTQ plus community. Here's what I'd say. When that is true, it is sin. And it is sinful. God has called us to love people. And I gotta tell you, as an unlovable person, I need a church that will love me when I don't look or act the way God wants me to, not just when I seem to do it right. So how does Jesus respond? That's the question that followers of Christ must ask. He's given us the standard, one man, one woman in marriage. Outside of that, that's not God's orientation. We've talked about the claims, but what does Jesus do with all of us who are broken? Show of hands, is anyone here in some way, because of sin, broken, have you ever done anything that you would say, ah, that was broken? Then hear me carefully. This is good news for all of us, not just for some of us. Here's how Jesus addresses the brokenness of life. In John 8, there's a woman who finds herself in the worst moment of her life, and I want you to see how Jesus responds. Jesus is teaching, and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman caught In adultery. Let's pause there. She's caught in adultery. Have you ever considered what that means? It means that in the moment that she is sinning, there are men waiting outside the door to burst in, grab her by the hair, and bring her to Jesus. So are they there for restoration or condemnation? And by the way, where's the man in the story? Last I heard, it takes two to commit adultery. He's not even brought before Jesus. So they bring her. Why? Why? They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Come on, Jesus. What do you say? Here's a tricky one. And they were using this question as a trap. Oh, my goodness. That church people would use their words to trap, not to liberate, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, I love this. Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And notice what he says. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, "'Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her.'" Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And notice what happens. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first. Why? Because as you get older, you tend to get wiser. You start to figure things out a little quicker. And some people say, well, what was Jesus writing? Was, Was he just doodling? Was he giving them time to think? Others have wondered, maybe in that moment Christ is not just doodling. Maybe he's writing the names of the men with stones in their hands and next to the names writing the sin that each of those men has committed or struggles with. And as they see their name, they go, peace out. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And so now the only one worthy of condemning has opportunity to talk. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? This word, condemned, important word. It doesn't mean to render judgment only, to say that's wrong or that's right. It means you render judgment to then judge the person and punish the person. In other words, is no one going to punish you? And she says, No one, sir. And I want you to see how Jesus responds to you and me when we are disoriented in any area of life. This is the gift of God. The gospel in two sentences. Are you ready? Then neither do I condemn you. Yes, what you did is wrong, but I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to send you to hell. You can turn to me. Why? Now go and leave your life of sin. Reorient yourself to me. I have the right to throw stones and to cast you out, but instead I'm inviting you to reorientation. Follow me is always an invitation to reorientation. Friend, if you are disoriented this morning in your gender or in the fact that you have broken God's heart by your words or your eyes or the way you've interacted with your children this week, God's beautiful invitation is reorientation where He says, I don't condemn you. I'm not going to send you to hell. I died for you so you may now live. Now go and leave your life of sin. I don't condemn. I'm not going to condone. Leave your life of sin. You need to understand that Jesus does not give us a pass on sin. As D.A. Carson, theologian, wrote, he said, Jesus does not ask her if she's guilty, but if there are others who condemn her. That she is guilty is presupposed by the final word of verse 11 when he says, go now and leave your life of sin, end quote. In other words, Jesus doesn't take your sin lightly. You understand, Jesus takes sin stronger than anyone in history. He died for it. But the good news of Jesus is that he offers us sinners the opportunity to start life anew. That's the good news. So, friends, how do we respond with this particular topic? Five comments, real quick, and then we're going to call it a morning. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one Jesus people, Jesus people, should be approachable. Guilt rarely brings people to God. Let me rephrase that. Your guilt and mine rarely lead people to God. The scriptures tell us. That the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and the coming judgment. In other words, be approachable. Isn't it interesting that the people who seemed furthest from God wanted to get closest to Jesus? It's almost like the more I'm like Jesus, the more those who aren't like Jesus will want to be with me. So be approachable. Number two, be countercultural. Countercultural means that whatever the prevening or prevailing cultural norms, we do not allow the culture to dictate what we do. The church has always looked different, and the seasons when the church has looked like culture, the church has lost her voice and her authority to speak into culture. In other words, you don't look around saying, well, how is culture behaving? You say, this is what Jesus says. I will walk with him. But this also means, friends, can, we be, can I be blunt? I'm going to be anyway. Let's go. Here we go. Why are some of us shocked when those who do not hold the values of God and we expect them to behave like they do? None of us should be surprised that people who may not claim Jesus don't act like Jesus. Stop being shocked by that, friends. It is we who should be shocked when we don't act like Jesus, not the other way around. So be countercultural. Number three, we must be consistent. What does this mean? The church... Has struggled with sexual immorality for a long time. There are those of you in our church who are having sex with people that you're not married to. And there are those in this room where this past week you looked at pornography. How dare we claim one is false while living in sin? As followers of Jesus, we submit everything, not just the sins of others, but our own areas so that we as the followers of Jesus may become more and more like our Savior. In fact, do you know that the Holy Spirit, God gave you the Holy Spirit to make you like Jesus. Did you know that? That's not just some neat tack on or gift. It is a, he is the one who helps us become who we are not already. And the goal is daily to become more like Jesus so we are approachable, we are countercultural, we are consistent. Oh, and here's number four. We as followers of Jesus, put this up, we must look to Jesus for what is true, right, and good. Don't look to the government for the standard of right and wrong. Listen, I want to be very clear. I'm grateful I live in a nation where my voice can lend weight to the laws and to some level of righteousness. I think that's a great thing but my beliefs are not dependent on what a government says or doesn't say and whether we have godly leaders or ungodly leaders is irrelevant to the church of Jesus Christ we are to be those who look to Jesus i'm reoriented behind you jesus daily 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 and number 5 this is the big one this is the one i struggle with most is this love without strings attached do you know what that means It means that no matter what another person does, you say, as best I can, I want to be Jesus to you because you are made in the image of God, infinitely valuable. My Savior died on a cross for you and for me, and so my call is to love you, to bless you, to encourage you. When possible, yes, to, to kind of redirect, but end of the day, my job is to love you without strings attached. You say, how do I know if I'm doing that? Here's a simple question to ask would you, if you knew this person would never change, would you still love them and be with them and care for them? If the answer is yes, then you are loving without strings attached. Now, I understand this is a tough topic for most of us in this room for a variety of reasons. But what I want you to understand is the good news of the gospel. Jesus' power on the cross is bigger than any sin in this room or in this world. When he went to the cross He took on your sin, every bit of it, even the ones you don't know that you're going to commit. And he said, I'll pay for that one, and that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. And he opens a vein and covers us in his cleansing blood. He gives you righteousness. He takes your sin. And when he went into that tomb, friend, every sin you've committed goes into the tomb. And it is there to this day when Jesus came out, he left your sin, and he brought you life. And if you are in Christ Jesus, do not allow the sin of your past or the desires of your heart to rob you of your relationship. You are positioned with Christ in the heavenlies. You've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are forgiven. Turn and sin no more. But when you sin, return to the One who forgives and accept His ongoing forgiveness. May we receive it, believe it, and give it to those who need it. And the church said, Amen.